Wading into youth ministry can be overwhelming. It's more overwhelming if you don't have someone to lean on and learn from. The Rooted Mentorship Program was created for new youth pastors in precisely this situation. The Rooted Mentorship Program allows you to spend 18 months alongside a group of your peers learning from a veteran mentor who will help you develop as a youth pastor and grow in your personal walk with the Lord. You don't need to wade through the challenges of ministry alone. We are here for you. Learn more by visiting rootedministry.com mentorship. Welcome to the Rooted Conference podcast. This podcast features main talks and workshops from Rooted's annual conferences. Find more information about our annual conference at rootedministry.com. This talk was recorded at the Rooted 2022 conference in Kansas City. Uh, if you don't already, on the back table, there's the QR code for my slideshow. And um, let's see, there's no dry erase marker. Duh. Grab me one of those, my sister, if you would. Um, please email me if you have any questions or want the slideshow in your inbox. I think you'll probably need to screenshot slides you want to keep because the QR code's here, but we'll get you this slideshow if you want it. Just feel free to reach out to read it, however, um, because I'm gonna cruise through a lot of material. <laughs> so here's the QR code, you can follow along. Um, so overview, helps me to have the overview, know where we're going, we're gonna talk about what depression is, then we're gonna interject with the God who sees and incarnates, come on in. Um, then we're gonna talk about what trauma is, and then triaging, meaning kind of figuring out when there are further needs than we can provide or that we need. And then we're going to talk about hope, which also is in the middle. But that's where we're headed. And the first thing we're going to do is read ourselves in the Lord, because these are extremely heavy topics. I've, I've known them in my own life, and none of us come in here without people in our mind or our own experiences. So what are some ways we can anchor ourselves in the Lord in general? For me, I was thinking through this and just what would I want even for this time. We think about worship, which is why I wanted to have that song play. Um, the word and witness. So worship the word witness, ways that we get to be together in community. Um, and with witness, really kind of all of these can be accompanied in being the body of Christ, encapsulated by it. But prayer, fellowship, remembering together, grief and gratitude, serving. Um, we're anchoring ourselves in the Lord before talking about this because we don't, we don't receive information just to think on the positive side of things. Um, doing this allows us to enter into the weight of what we're talking about a little bit more, to honor it, um, and to wrestle fully and honestly with it and with hope. Um, and so what I want you to do, this is how we're going to do it, is to take a hot second and think about where you've known the pursuit of Jesus in your life. And you can write it down, you can just think about it in your mind. Where have you known the pursuit of Jesus in your life? This could be now, this could be growing up. For me, I think about a particular young life leader in middle school who opened her home to me, who came to my games, who, who embodied the love of Jesus coming toward me. So where have you known the pursuit? Yeah. You mean the pursuit of Jesus pursuing you? You got it. Where has Jesus pursued you? How have you known his pursuit? The God who sees, the God who pursues, who incarnates. What comes to mind? Yeah. Uh, I would say for me, it was in a really dark season of sin, and where there's no other way out except for God pursuing me and pulling me out of it. How did you do that? How did you do that? Or what's you one used, way that you uh, mentioned? Three people, really. Mm -hmm. 
in the words that they spoke of conviction and yet love. Praise God. Anybody else? Anything come to mind? I know it's a bit of a mysterious one. That's okay. Yeah. I was homeless at 16 due to serious family difficulties. Ended up, because of the pursuit of Jesus, in a pastor's home, a real pastor. Uh, no, not, uh, he lived it in his life. Mm-hmm. And we became a believer there. Oh, yeah. started a long journey of healing. And Thanks be to God. Thank you for sharing that. That's amazing. Another question for you. Where have you been fed by Jesus recently? Where has he fed you, filled you, helped sustain you? Where has he fed you? So for me in my life, um, one way he has fed me is through beginning to volunteer again with middle school youth ministry. And y'all, unexpectedly, these guys, they bring me so much joy. And I mean, I was in youth ministry directly for years, but forgot, like, their whimsy and humor and bluntness and... I just love them. Oh, I love them. So God is feeding me through his body, through them even. What about y'all? Where's a place he's fed you recently? I know this sounds uh, kind of cliche, uh, but through just basic Christian practices like prayer and uh, scripture, especially like when I'm really going through something hard and I'm just like thinking, yeah, it's always going to be this way. And then just like having someone else read scripture to me, like, that will really sense that. Or someone like praying for me and saying like, no, this is actually like really true. Thank you for that. I think I'm astounded the longer I live to, the more I need to hear, especially hearing the word and hearing truth spoken over me. Even if I know it, there's a different experience of hearing that I think we're made for. It's powerful. It's good. Okay. So we're rooted here. So my story. So how long, O Lord, is the title of this? Psalm 13, 1, 2. Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle uh, with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? So the pandemic for me, again, single, 38. My roommate at that point had gone back to Massachusetts to live with her family. So early 2020, um, she could work from there. So she left. So it was me and my lovingly geriatric dog, Bo, um, who had just had an ACL or like CCL replacement. Um, But in that isolation, the fear, and um, I had just lost the ability to really walk, go on walks, because I have some chronic pain. So everyone's talking about how much walking they're doing, and um, I'm stuck in my house. And the isolation, um, the pain of that, the darkness of it, and it taps into, anytime we experience a grief, it pings other griefs in our life, right? So for me, chronic singleness, chronic pain, really led to a hard time for me. Low, low motivation, um, lack of creativity, lack of being able to experience sustained joy and have glimpses of it, but I couldn't kind of feel it and it would hang around. Um, and then really experiences of feeling pretty disconnected from myself, just like hard to kind of get off the floor, like hard to get up and move when the world's shut down and it's, it's dark, we don't know what's coming, there's fear. Um, uh, a lot of negative, more negative thoughts than I used to have. Some swear words that sometimes in there, but more of them. Um, so it was dark. Uh, these psalms are a place that I could resonate with. And definitely an experience of depression myself. They mean a lot to me. So we, we see that there are differing opinions, but that around 60 to 65 of the 150 psalms are psalms of lament and grief. And... Um, about 30 are individual psalms of lament, and the rest are communal. And there's a whole book in the Bible on lamentations. So just to validate 
clearly God has given us this weird, now but not yet, grace of grief and lament. They are two of the best tools we have, or maybe one. I put them together, grief and lament. Um, And we can, we can resonate in our darkness with the psalmists. You say, turn to me, be gracious to me, for I'm lonely and afflicted. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. Um, So lament, I love this definition. It's a form of praise and prayer with the intent of drawing close to God in times of great suffering and pain. So praise is added in that, which is pretty bizarre, but the Psalms do it for us, right? So it's a form of praise and prayer with the intent of drawing close to God in intense suffering and pain. So all these Psalms, 60 to 65 of the 150, they're about lament. What, that, what might that tell us about grief and lament and pain? There's so many in there. What does that, what does that say? What do you think? It's a normal part of human nature. Yeah, it's a normal part of human nature. Um, and it's needed and valuable and important. Uh, it's not comfortable, but it, it is valuable, right? It matters. Um, it's worth giving voice to. It's worth identifying. It's worth bringing before the body of God and the, the spirit of God, right? The Father. Um, it's important to share. It's not uncommon in the people of God. It can feel the isolation of depression, especially, can feel very lonely. This is the reminder you're not alone. God's people for all of time have experienced hard, hard things, dark things. Um, it doesn't need to be packaged with a spiritual bow. This is what this shows us too. It can be so tempting to kind of give the like, God works all things for good, Romans 8, or Romans um, scripture. But the reality is we're invited to come to God exactly where we are and he meets us exactly where we are. And we see that through the Psalms. That's a blessing. That's You don't need to get it together and put on the happy face. Although there are contexts we're gonna want to set apart for things like not being undone. But um, you don't need to put a spiritually positive bow. And... We get to be honest before the Lord. So the Psalms are our invitation to do that, as is Jesus, whose own words echo Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he goes to the Psalms. We know he cries um, when Lazarus dies, right? So he, he is a man of sorrows who grieves and laments, and he's our picture and invitation to do that when we're thinking about something as hard as depression, and we'll get to trauma. So... Depression versus depressed. I kind of want to separate these two out for you um, and talk about the reality. So depression, clinical depression, major depressive disorder, is a clinical diagnosis that needs clinical help and supportive community. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Whereas when I feel depressed, it's an emotion that needs sharing and bearing, not fixing and spiritualizing. So to have a feeling or an experience of sadness, lowness, I feel depressed, does not necessarily mean I have a significant condition that I need to have clinical support, potentially um, medicine for, whatever it might be that God provides. Uh, But for our students, thinking about differentiating for them, because right now we live in a highly therapized culture that I just did the anxiety workshop, says if I have anxiety, I have a condition, there's something wrong with me, but then I belong to this group that has a really hard struggle anxiety condition, right? So it can be tempting. We might have students that are um, probably less with this than anxiety, but uh, almost like we catastrophize feeling sad or feeling depressed to them, like maybe I have a condition. Um, whereas, you know what? Like, life has a lot of darkness. We still live with death at this point. Christ has defeated it, but hasn't come back to do fully away with it. So, um, depressed is an emotion that needs sharing and bearing, not fixing or spiritualizing. Um, 
The feelings wheel is exceptionally helpful for checking in with other words of what emotions actually are, right? So if we went to sad, we'd have depressed, pain and hurt, grief and sorrow, unhappy. It's a way you can kind of try on, is this what I'm actually feeling? Um, what am I feeling? And I made a video for our church on emotion, a little theology of emotion that can be helpful as well. So if you want to see it, it's NSF Emotions 101, because um, we don't have enough time to get into that, but that'll help give you more context for what emotions are. And I'm trying to remember if I don't talk about it today. So yeah, emotions do at least two things, connect us with people, God, self, and others. And then they also tell us something important is happening in our story. So if you've got a kid saying, I'm depressed, and you're like, hmm, um, tell me more. That tell me more to them and moving toward them is a place of connection. And the experience, the emotion of depressed, of, you know, whatever it might be, pain, hurt, sorrow, sad, is just saying that there's something going on under their hood, like a dashboard indicator light. When your check engine light comes on, fixing the light is not as helpful as asking what's going on under the hood. So depressed would be, hey, it's telling you something's happening in your story that matters. It needs attending to, like that engine would need attending to, right? Major depressive disorder um, is called the, the common cold of psychological disorders, so pretty common out there. Um, and as common as it is, it's still extremely difficult for those of us that have experienced it. So even though it's most common, that doesn't um, deplete its weight, is what I'd say. So with this, with the disorder instead of the emotion, this is the occurrence of at least one major depressive episode in the absence of history of mania or hypomania. And that sounds very textbooky, and it is. It's from our um, DSM, the kind of Bible for psychological disorders. Uh, but it's helpful to know there's not going to be mania involved. That would be bi bipolar disorder or hyper hypomania, bipolar 2. Um, and then what is a depressive episode? So a depressive episode would be symptoms um, like loss of interest in pleasure. Um, and then I'm going to give you a list of them. Depressed mood, loss of interest in pleasure. Your emotional state has changed. Your motivation has decreased like I described in my story. Um, functioning and motor behavior may decrease, so you might slow down, feel slower when I'm dealing with one. Cognition, so more negative cognition, negative thoughts might be in your head more often. This is not for y'all to try to diagnose, just the reminder, especially as parents or youth workers. You're going to use your gut if you have a student that seems, something's telling you they're more than just sad. You know, I'm noticing maybe one of these things that we're going to talk about. They have more than just a couple of these. Their sleep is disrupted. They're not engaging with their small group or youth group anymore. Um, and they have the sad mood. Got a lot of guilt they're talking about. Their energy is low. Um, their concentration has decreased. That was very true for me in the pandemic. My attention span dropped drastically. Appetite changes, which could be increased appetite or decreased appetite. Psychomotor changes, so restlessness um, or slower behavior. I think of kind of hunched shoulders as well. Um, and suicidality. So it could be ideation or plan. Any thoughts of that? Um, so all of these could contribute to what would actually be a depressive episode, not just feeling depressed. Questions on that? Okay. If you have any questions also or don't feel comfortable asking them, please email me. Please let me be a resource too if you have a student you're concerned about or yourself so that I can get you resources moving forward. If you'd like, just know that's there for you. So conceptualizing depression, understanding it is all conceptualizing means. There are a couple different ways. Um, I teach at Covenant College and the psych department, and we talk about a lot of different theories of understanding. But I think, think for today, just to, to kind of understand depression as potentially a blocked goal or an irretrievable loss or anger turned inward or a spiritual attack will be helpful. 
Um, so with the blocked goal, again, thinking about a student or yourself, it could be that there was something like wanting to get into a certain college or get on a team or see parents reconciled that have been arguing that is not happening, that has contributed to someone really feeling shut down and, and maybe a major depressive episode. Irretrievable loss is pretty explanatory, but that could also that could be loss of a pet, not only kind of friends or family, but the loss of um, a dream. It could be a breakup. It could be a severe injury. Remember, kids kids don't have all the categories we have or the ability to process things yet. So something like that could be a really big deal. Um, it's a big deal for us as well. Sometimes we don't give weight to that. And then spiritual attack. We certainly live in a realm. Um, where a world where the kingdom of darkness is still at work. It is hamstrung, but there are still things going on that impact us, even though Jesus has clearly um, had the final say and his power is at work within us. So that's worth mentioning, and we don't have time to get into it. That would be a fun whole theological conversation, but certainly a part of our reality. Yeah, art, art, poetry, psalms, these things are places I go to seek the Lord, and this prayer has meant a lot to me, too, when he says, sometimes when I pray, utter the words but I don't feel them or think them. Sometimes when I pray, I utter the words, thinking about what I say, but not feeling. Sometimes when I pray, I utter the words and both think and feel what I say. As an act of will, an act of will cannot make me feel, nor stop my mind from wandering. An act of will can only make me utter. So I shall utter the words and let the spirit do the rest, guiding my heart and mind as he will. There's just something to this, especially when I'm dealing with depression myself where I can't offer or bring all of myself, and that's a part of what's hard, just to know God meets me where I am. And even without the utterance, I think he knows our hearts and meets us where we are. Sometimes someone else utters for us. But we're going to move to, the, I'm interjecting this intentionally, the God who sees and incarnates before we transition to trauma, because I'm going to have a little bit talking about depression. But God disrupts our world. He entered into time and space. This is one of the unique, beautiful parts of the Christian faith, right? He took on flesh. He came down and entered in. And he saw us. Um, he came into where we are. He always meets us where we are. He, Yahweh reaches out and gathers the people to himself, right? This is not us making ourselves better for God. He comes to us and meets us where we are. We are his people. He is our God. He says that over and over. So um, this makes me think about uh, <laughs> this cartoon. Hey, I fell in that hole last year. So this guy's down in the hole. Depression can be like being very low, down in a hole. No one has ever felt this awful, so that definitely a, a sense of isolation, kind of loneliness taking on a, a thought. And then that person saying, hey, I fell in that hole last year, need a hand. So that, that could be a good start, um, but if that person stays up there and says, you know, I'm going to throw down a ladder, or I'm going to give you some helpful tools, that might be less what this person needs, especially if they are in a major depressive episode. And what they might actually need, again, thinking about students, friends, or ourselves, is someone to climb down in that hole with them. Incarnation would be God meeting us where we are. So sympathy, that guy we just looked, might be like, hey, kind of know what it's like, good luck. You know, like send him a couple Bible verses. Um, Over-identification, which we're not going to talk as much about, would be kind of like climbing down there and becoming depressed yourself because we're not keeping a hold of um, the roots, keeping hold of the health ourselves, our own story, like this guy is. He's come down to the care receiver. So this is the depressed, someone with depression. Empathy meets them where they are while still holding on to self and story. So it's still I can care for you, but I'm, I'm getting care myself and able to kind of keep my own oxygen mask on. Does that make sense? Uh, this visual helps me a lot. And this is a picture of the incarnation, too. God coming down, still connected to the Father, 
to himself, but meeting us right where we are to rescue us, to walk with us. It makes me think of Philippians 2. Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped to his own advantage. And either he, met, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, um, being made in human likeness. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So it's a picture of care for us. Um, he sees and enters in. So learning to see, which is applicable for both. We started with depression because I think it's sometimes the symptoms we see when there might be trauma. There's not always trauma, but it's a little more evident sometimes. So now we're talking incarnation and God seeing us. So I'm going to ask you all to look up some scripture for me, and we're going to pause and consider how Jesus actually looks at people. Um, so who is willing to read Luke 7, 12 to 13 for me? His hand went up for you. Perfect. Luke 7, 12. 7, 12 to 13. Matthew 15, 32. <clears throat> Thank you. Let's look at Matthew 9, 36. Okay. Thank you. Lauren, you up for Matthew 14, 14? Sure. Thank you. And one more, John 11, 33. It's so nice to have eyes, actually. You know, like with high schoolers, they just keep looking down. They're like, oh, my God, contact. Thanks for making eye contact, guys. <laughs> this has been one of the most beautiful curriculums out right now is see Jesus material, looking at the person of Christ more than theological ideas. You slow down and zoom in and look at how he interacts with people. So we're kind of taking a page from their book here. So let's look at how Jesus looks. Because Paul Miller, a writer I really love, um, theologian, says loving begins with looking. So let's consider how he looks. Luke 7, 12 to 13. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Good. So how did he look? He looked with compassion. Good. How about Matthew 15, 32? Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Awesome. Sensing a theme here? Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Thank you. Matthew 14, 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And John eleven thirty three. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Mm -hmm. Deeply troubled anger, so grief there. He's moved. So Jesus lets himself be impacted when he sees. And this is tough for us. Um, we'd rather, I know myself, I want to kind of fix it, give it something that's going to take care of it, right? The man God himself not only sees, but lets himself be impacted. And this is a part of how we care for people, part of what we're all learning. But it's a, a second step to kind of noticing and making assumptions, right? It slows us down. And it helps us ask how we're looking at our student, right? Especially if we have somebody in mind or one of our kids. How are we looking at our kid? I think about the postures you might see in youth group or a small group. And we kind of start to ascribe to put labels on them. Like, that's the mopey kid. Or that's the attention-seeking kid. Um, the lazy kid, the rebellious kid, right? So how are we looking? How are we labeling? Are we seeing them as the image bearer in front of us? And are we honoring the pain beneath their actions? Those are two categories to kind of begin to be curious about. So we want, we want our eyes to be shaped more and more into the eyes that the Lord has, right? So noticing starts with noticing, looking. 
looking with compassion. And then I really want to, we're going to do a little talking through Imago Dei, so the image of God. So God created humans unlike any other creatures in Genesis, in his image. So what does it mean to be Imago Dei, made in his image? And how do we practice seeing our students in God's image? So being made in the image of God means we have a value, dignity, and worth that's not up for debate. It's linked to God. So humans are different than animals in this. They are valuable. Uh, and nothing can take that away. Nothing. Even though it can feel marred, it can feel um, like you have no worth. We're made to rule over creation with justice and goodness. That takes a lot of different forms. It could be in your work, gardening, caring for a creature like a dog. We're made to create other image bearers, which could be spiritual and not just having children in your family. Um, so discipleship. Imago Dei means that we reflect God uniquely. So each of you show me who God is in a way that only you can in the body of Christ. You are needed. Our students need to hear that too. You are needed in the body of Christ because you show me God and his characteristics in a way that's unique to you. You're made for relationships. Our triune God is three people in one. He is relationship in and of himself. So being made in this image means we're made for relationship. And we're made for God's glory. And we're made to enjoy God through his good gifts and creation. So that's crash course on Imago Dei. Um, but the question would be, how do we have our eyes shaped in seeing the characteristics of God or their Imago Dei in our students and calling it out? Like, hey, I see how you invited that new girl over to be a part of the group when she was new to youth group. Can we bless that? Can we, can we see and bless the Imago Dei um, and celebrate, even if it's like the feistiness, the, the passion, God's passion, like if it's stubbornness that you see in a kid, like I see that you're passionate, you know the Lord's passionate. How can we, how can we bless Imago Dei? Um, and have the Lord shaped our eyes to see them as image bearers, especially when we have these labels, the mopey, et cetera. How do, we, how do we see the Imago Dei? Why do we look away? So with the attention-seeking kid, the mopey kid, what makes us look away from them instead of looking with compassion and letting ourselves be impacted like we see with Jesus? What do you think? Probably yeah. because it's irritating sometimes. Yeah, sometimes yeah. we're annoyed. Yes, what else? Yeah, so this is an answer, also kind of a question. So... Um, so there's like the, depre- the depression, which is clinical, oftentimes needs more professional help, and then there's the depressed state, which is, um, and it seems like the way you're talking about it is like it's something that happens to them um, because of a situation in their life or some sort of external circumstance or something like that. I think where I struggle is when I see uh, like patterns of behavior that are resulting in those negative emotions. Mm-hmm. So it's like bad diet, bad sleep. You're on social media 10 hours a day or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the depressed state is not something that's happening to them. It's something they're generating. Mm-hmm. But I struggle to know like how to counsel. Is that something that needs to be comforted? Is that something that needs to be corrected? Is that... Great so question. That I, I'll stay away. Ah. <laughs> you know, so it makes I, you look or, away. Or, or, or just, I just don't know what to do with it. Yeah, yeah, yep. Um, questioning our assumptions about why we think something is happening is good. It's good to, t- to come before the Lord, like here's what I think. Um, if there's actual concern and you've got data of those things happening to the point where you're actually really worried about this kid because it might be verging on clinical depression, you can bring that data to a parent. So not the like, your kid has depression, here's what I see. Or your kid's not sleeping or eating enough, here's what I see. But, hey, I noticed that they're on their screen, all of youth group, and it breaks my heart that they're not engaging with kids, and I'm concerned. So bringing data to parents that's not yet labeled and has the assumptions can be helpful if you're really concerned. Um, Otherwise, we're back to seeing this kid, seeing them 
humanizing them, helping them understand you're more than your screen. You're more than your behaviors. And that's different. That's a, a generalization when I'm sure there are specifics here, and context really does matter. But um, sometimes we get lost or distracted in the behaviors and the assumptions we've made. When we've got a kid, who knows if there's trauma or abuse under there that we're about to hit on or something more complex. Um, and it's good to keep in mind there could be. But that's good because Jesus was compassionate even if somebody's situation was the result of their own behavior. He still go. had compassion and still met them. There you go. Had. The woman caught in adultery, yeah, although it was right. likely not her choosing because she would have had no status. But yes, the yeah. woman with seven husbands, whatever it is, he comes and sits with. Yeah. Before all else, there's compassion and seeing. Yeah, good word. Thank you. Absolutely. What else? Uh, fear of failure. Yes. Yes. Fear of not saying the right thing, knowing what to do, fear of failure. Yeah. Or just ignorance in general. Mm-hmm. Or ignorance. Yep. That's. Yep. What else? I think our own insecurities and shame. Yes. Our own shame and insecurities can definitely be blocks. We might see ourselves in that kid, right? So not even knowing it, I can't approach that because I don't, I don't even know how to deal with it myself. Um, as somebody who's dealt with clinical depression, there has to be a point in which a person makes a decision to turn away from that. Mm-hmm. And um, when a person hasn't reached that point, it's kind of hard. Hmm. Or at least um, a point to receive help. I might cut yes, that a little that's bit. A good way to put it. Yes, yes. Yep. That's what I was going to think is when you've been rejected already or you've mm-hmm. tried to step in and it hasn't been received well, then it's like, okay, I'm just going to avoid it. So yes. I don't make it worse. Yes, we've tried. I can't try anymore. And that's, yep, a good confession because I think we are invited to. Jesus never stops pursuing us or coming for us, but we can't. That's where we're like, Holy Spirit, help. I'm done. I need you to help me move toward that kid again. So, yeah, frustrated or annoyed. We don't get the response we want, which is so much of youth ministry. Um, uh, or with the drama of a student, if we label a kid dramatic. If you've got that label, ooh, I invite you to step back. That, that uh, can really keep us from approaching and loving well. Um, we feel powerless to help, which can come out as we feel angered or annoyed because we, we can't fix them. I think so much of life is enduring powerlessness for the sake of others in love, especially when we grieve with people, and that is excruciating, and it takes the Holy Spirit helping us, truly. We recognize ourselves in the student. We don't know how to help. We hope that ignoring the behavior will make it stop. No one wants to admit that this is true, but we're like, maybe it'll just stop, you know? <laughs> Probably not. Um, we don't have the energy, very fair. And, or we ourselves are triggered, right? Something in them is triggering something in us. Or we're confused or overwhelmed, we can't handle things. So plenty of, plenty of reasons we look away. Plenty of things that drive us to the Lord to say, please help me love my kid or this student. So I want to invite you to foster curiosity. This kind of goes off your question to what is beneath this stuff that we're seeing, the behaviors, the, the drama, attention-seeking, or the mopiness, um, the screen time. I have a couple kids from youth group in my head just, man, I don't know what's going on there, but what's, what's beneath that? Might there be family of origin issues? So no one would have known growing up because my parents were such the cheery, happy cocktail party people at church. Like They fought all the time. There's so much hostility and anger in my home uh, that led to, for me, being perfectionistic and just like trying to fix and help everything. Uh, so family of origin issues, biological issues. Our brains are not all the same. Um, neurotransmitters and their functioning are different for people. Things like bipolar disorder have genetic components. And then uh, there are certainly ways to understand even our biology, our DNA shifting from trauma. Generational trauma is another interesting thing to consider that shapes our brain. Spiritual issues, for sure. Uh, we live in a world, like we said before, that has the kingdom of darkness still at work, even though it does not win. 
sociological issues. So bullying, we think about who the friend group is, community, neighborhood. So any, any part of their sociology could be contributing to what's going on. Say they're walking home and they're being bullied by some kid in the neighborhood every day and not telling anyone. Don't know. Or they go to a neighborhood, they go home to a neighborhood that's not safe. Uh, that they're listening to gunshots every night and they've got to keep their guard up. Environmental issues. Um, with more time, I tell you the story of mold in someone's walls impacting all of their roommates where they all just were, were like powered down and had headaches and some depressive symptoms and it was environmental. They didn't know until they moved to a different house and their symptoms were resolved. But uh, yeah, something like mold can also play into it. And then seasonal affective disorder, right? For the winter, it's really hard for some folks, that amount of darkness. Um, so, and trauma history, which is where we're going. So be curious, foster curiosity. When you notice yourself in the pattern of labeling or your frustration, we pray, we confess, and we step back and say, I wonder what's beneath. It's a trauma. I'm going to apologize because we're not going to be able to give this weight, but I do want you to have some categories for trauma. And you'll have this PowerPoint again. And certainly, it's fair to understand some folks do call the pandemic what we would experience as collective trauma. Um, but I think this, it's helpful to more think about trauma being much more about what happens in us than what has happened to us because we haven't all been impacted by the pandemic as trauma, right? Some of my friends who had former trauma were completely undone. Um, one, one friend has walked away from faith, the other sunk into working 80 hours a week as a pharmacist. Mm -hmm. Trauma is much more about what happens in us than what happens to us. So in the other classroom, I drew a thinking, feeling, and behaving triangle. So the idea that our cognition, our thinking is impacted, our feelings are impacted in us, and our behaviors and our bodies are impacted is important. There's a really fantastic graphic novel called Trauma is Really Strange and has images that are helpful to understand it from great research. So fight or flight or dissociation switch on really, really quickly. Unless they are discharged, the brain can default to these life and death scenarios long after the danger's passed. So your brain's just on danger all the time, especially if you have different types of trauma we'll talk about. You might not realize it. Um, so much more about what's happening in us, that, that brain being switched on that we'll talk about than the car accident. Because one person that gets in a car accident could experience it as trauma, and someone else will not. So the event itself, again, is not what makes it traumatic. Trauma resides, resides in how your brain and body subjectively experience the event. So trauma results in the fundamental reorganization of the way the mind and brain manage perceptions, the way they're actually working. So it changes not only how we think and what we think about, but also the very capacity to think. So it does shift our brain. This says people can rely on thinking and function pretty well, but often report they feel cut off like an observer. So that would be dissociation, that separate from myself type feeling, which I experience on occasion as well. Either being kind of cut up in my head. Some people describe looking at themselves from outside their bodies. Detachment is a part of how some folks survive. And it's just a survival mechanism, not something they've chosen. So it's actually a really beautiful way the brain protects us and helps us to survive. So trauma. Here, here are some definitions for us. So it occurs when suffering overwhelms normal human coping. That's Diane Langberg's definition. She's a, a Christian psychologist that was just like for years learning about and caring for people with trauma before we had good trauma research. She's a wonderful person to read. So yeah, occurs when suffering overwhelms normal, normal human coping. 
the past is not in the past. This is where we think about the vet veteran who comes back and may have flashbacks, kind of they're experiencing, their body's experiencing in the moment, a return to the past even, nightmares, et cetera. And then wounds of absence or wounds of presence can be contributors to trauma, which is important to distinguish. Again, where I wish we had more time, but that means a wound of absence would be like neglect. So someone is not getting what they need, especially growing up. It could be emotional support, et cetera. A wound of presence would be like physical abuse or a child being shown pornography. Um, it could be a lot of different things, presence, something done to them. Or uh, if you were in, he did a great job in the addiction workshop. He hit on big T, little t trauma. We're going to differentiate here um, and talk. So big T trauma would be something like domestic violence, rape, child abuse, a car accident, war, um, or, and he argued for, and I would agree, the violation of sexual integrity, like exposure to porn early, can have a significant impact on the development and be big T trauma for a child. Little t trauma is anything that causes fear, pain, or harm, that disrupts, lingers, haunts, or causes intrusive thoughts, flashbacks, or has a foothold of shame in you. Um, so this could be anything like a loss, an injury, a breakup even, a surgery, a phobia, Witnessing a car accident, so some of this can be secondhand trauma if you're working with students that have experienced trauma, or I got my EMT license at some point in my 20s, and there can be vicarious or secondary trauma in those senses. So that would be little t trauma. And then complex trauma would involve stressors that are repetitive and chronic, and either involve direct harm or neglect by those who should have been caregivers. Um, but they, this often occurs at developmentally vulnerable times, and that can therefore seriously compromise human development. Um, and there's, there's an argue for, again, thinking, argument for thinking about the pandemic as a complex trauma for our children, potentially, um, not for all kids. But if they were in that state of fear and um, not able to get support so that a lot of this seeds as trauma when we don't have a safe place to be comforted, to process, to lament with someone, the isolation and shame uh, that is the result of lack of caregiver support, et cetera, is a part of what encodes something as trauma for us. Um, and then there's some things that just are traumatic by nature. But the thing about both big T and little t trauma is that they both need to be processed. They both involve the release of the flooding of adrenaline and cortisol in our bodies. So they really have the same impact. There's not a lesser. We say little t, but they need the same support, the same process of um, clinical support and care, and we want to be aware of both of them. Um, this is huge, again, on what, why something encodes or doesn't encode as trauma. An environment that was not responsive, people were not there to help you in general, is a big soil of trauma. And part of why, again, two people in that car accident, so you've got two kids, when one goes home and is told, why are you, don't complain about it, it's over, you're fine, you're safe, they're shamed, it might encode as trauma. This kid is met with oh man, I'm so glad you're okay, do you wanna talk about it? Let's get you support. Probably won't encode as trauma, right? Um, trauma is characterized by helplessness, powerlessness, and terror. Talk therapy is not enough for healing. This is important to recognize. It can be a start, but therapy needs to involve mind-body strategies, honoring that our whole selves are impacted for healing to occur. And there are a bunch of different really neat modalities that can be helpful like EMDR, brain spotting, Etc. Um, and then, but also, I'd say, folks that were doing talk therapy and helping people through trauma long before these modalities were effective, 
but we just we want to honor that the, the mind and body are also impacted and we have maybe just have good tools now to address those even better tools so a quick crash course on the brain of what's being impacted um, just so you can recognize it in yourself maybe or in other people um, trying brain here got your prefrontal cortex this guy and then your um, brain sense and motor coordination this is your thought executive functioning planning thinking rationalizing we all know our kids prefrontal cortex is not developed yet until <laughs> <laughs> you're 25 right so it takes a while limbic system so here's your amygdala down here um, the smoke detector of the brain that goes off when the smoke detector when there's smoke in the house your amygdala says run right fight flight freeze no matter whether the toast is burning or your house is on fire and when we've got trauma in our past, this smoke detector is often going off all of the time, even though you're not aware of it. You're in a constant heightened arousal state. And, and we call that barking dog. So you may have students that have complex trauma you're not aware of that are constantly in that flipped lid, heightened arousal state of fight, flight, freeze, fawn. And then trauma therapy, grounding, working with someone can help bring this back down, bring your prefrontal cortex online to be wise owl. And that's a lot to throw at you without a lot of explanation. Questions on that? <laughs> <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. Um, the reason that, that I bring this up too is that rationalizing with, say, students in flipped lid, like they're just out of their minds, having a panic attack or something like that, to try to talk them out of it will not be helpful. To ask them to breathe with you, make eye contact with you, use their senses could be helpful. So just safety and stabilization, loving them, meeting where they are, co-regulating is what we call that. Just like, I'm with you, not going anywhere, we're in this together. Far more effective than let's like talk through this. They're not in the talking place if they're here. They're in the like, let's come back into our body. So I remember um, a youth retreat back a decade ago. There was a student who was not with our youth group who was totally unresponsive, but she was breathing. But we couldn't get her to track eye contact with us. We couldn't get her to respond verbally. Um, we, I didn't have words for it then, but someone was trying to get her to breathe with them and to like lift her arms. So she was dissociated totally, I now know. Kind of like totally flipped lid. And again, like saying like, let's, let's talk through this. None of that was going to get through, but helping her ground in her body and keeping her in a safe place and helping her breathe was the most important way we could, we could support her at that point. Trauma responses, so flip lid that again some of us live in. Um, fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. Um, fawn is kind of newer added, most of us know fight, flight, and freeze, but the people pleasing, lack of identity, no boundaries, overwhelm, codependent, taking on other people's stuff is also can be a trauma response. So survival mode, and when our lids are flipped, I've just kind of said safety and stabilization are the goal. It's not the time to use logic or reason. We prioritize safety, and you'll have these slides. I'll gladly send them to you. Social engagement system. This is a beautiful reflection of how God made us to be connected to each other. We help co-regulate. So that's why I'm, I'm with you. I'm not going anywhere. It's okay to feel what you're feeling. This feeling will not last forever. It won't. Um, stay with me. Look me in the eyes. Listen to my voice. Let's try breathing together. So all that stuff that's, I'm here with you in the present, incarnational, kind of emergent. If there's an emergency, this is the stuff we're doing. Or asking for help. You know, you're not therapists. You're not supposed to be therapists. It's okay. Um, relational trauma requires relational repair. We can all, as the body of Christ, be those safe hands, thinking minds, and regulating bodies. So, what do we do with all this information? It's a lot. I know. I've dumped. Um, 
What do we do? My hope is that y'all aren't going to take this information and try to use it to fix yourselves or fix your students. Um, we want to use our awareness to love and serve or to take a step toward receiving care, like you'd said. So we're going to talk about triage to receive love ourselves. Just coming into awareness would be my hope. Um, any information, when I teach on abnormal psychology, we talk a bunch of conditions. We're always talking about how we use those to dignify image bearers. How do we use them to love and serve instead of objectifying, stick them in a category where it's a little safer? So how do we use this to serve and love? That's always our question. So we're going to talk triage um, for our students and triage for ourselves. Triage just means discerning the level of urgency. So what's kind of safe, unsafe. So anytime you're uncomfortable with something a student says or does, tell an authority over you and tell their parents if their parents are safe people. So if there's abuse happening at home, you're going to need to involve authority in your church or call Children and Family Services. Um, in Tennessee, we're mandated reporters if you're an adult, so you will call if there's any kind of abuse. Um, use your gut, but always... Always tell somebody. Anytime a student mentions suicidality, tell their parents. Anytime. This, and this is, I mean, I'd love to teach on engaging that as well, but if you ever get a whiff in any way that a student could potentially be suicidal, always, always, always ask, and ask directly. You will not be putting the idea into their mind. It's there, it's not. Myself, having been asked this in my 20s, I was not suicidal, but I can just remember being asked by a pastor boss um, and I just felt cared for. It was just like, it's not there. It's actually actually comforting for me to realize it wasn't there. Suicidality wasn't. Always ask. Um, err on that side. Anytime you sense the need for further support or help for the student so that they reveal anxiety or depression or an eating disorder, um, consult with a trained mental health professional and consider referral. So it's great to get to know if you have resources in your area. Um, could be someone on staff, email me. I might be able to help you find resources in your area, but consult with somebody. Again, you're not supposed to have all the answers just to find further support. Yeah, remember, you're not a counselor. You're there to offer the incarnational love of Jesus, the truth of his word, and relational support through the body. That's our role. Triage for ourselves. So when to consider clinical support, because this is us as well. Any thoughts of harming yourself or not wanting to be alive? Barking dogs, you're starting to recognize. Actually, I think a lot of my life is more in fight, flight, freeze, or fawn than I realized before. Or this, I feel so disoriented and overwhelmed that I can't get my bearings. I just can kind of never seem to kind of get up, uh, get my head above water. Dramatic change in appetite, sleep, guilt, loss of pleasure, and normally pleasurable activity. So that MCG caps that we had on the depression slide too. Might be time to get some more support. And then the DSM talks about distress, distress disrupted to light work or relationships. So if something is just disrupting your life, again, worthy of addressing. Hope. Um, one of the best parts of getting to teach at Covenant College is I get to talk about Jesus explicitly in terms of mental health disorders, and I get to pray. And it's so fun to get to do that here instead of just stick, stick in psychological categories, because y'all, we have a living hope. I love that that's been our theme. Our God is alive. He meets us in dark places. He can deliver us. I've had friends delivered from eating disorders. He has not delivered me in my depression sometimes, but then also brings me out of it. Like, he can do anything. We can pray big prayers. Um, he loves to be gentle and patient. He doesn't expose harshly and say, like, I see you, you've got to heal, right? That's why we don't expose students harshly either. 
Um, think about the woman caught in adultery. He's an exposer. He bends down and takes the attention of the whole crowd on himself. Um, he covers her shame. He is patient. He loves to restore and heal. We see that over and over in the stories of Jesus, and certainly our whole trajectory in the Christian story is all being made right and new, new creation. He loves to use brokenness. Y'all know this. This is the backward nature of the Christian story. He uses suffering and brokenness far more and weakness than he uses glory and strength. He uses both. But in the story of Jesus, it's his death that brings our, our hope and restoration, not his conquering power. He conquers death through dying, right? Um, so he loves to use brokenness. He is broken for our sake. He has experienced trauma. Talk about a God who can relate. Being whipped and beaten and then crucified, he has known trauma himself. The cross is where death goes to die through Christ, right? Never has the end of our story. Never, ever will be the total end of our story. It is redeemed. Evil does not have the final say. Justice is done in the end, as Michelle talked about. And all the sad things will come untrue. There's a hope in that. God never minimizes our suffering in the way we tend to. That's it as well in the Psalms, part of why we started there. He gives weight to our suffering. He sees it. He bears it. He doesn't minimize it or spiritualize it. He weeps with those who weep, right? He gives Lazarus, just about the time and the space to come to weep over Lazarus' death instead of just, like, bringing him back to life. There's a way he provides time and space to lament, to give it weight. Suffering is real. If there's a God who validates it, it is our God. He's the God who redeems it and suffers with us. And we know the end of our story. I mean, that's the most hopeful. We keep our eyes on our past of what's been done in Christ and then where we're going. Um, Not to ignore our suffering, our trauma, or our depression, but to give it the weight it deserves and the place in the big story it deserves, which is that it is being redeemed, not overlooked. Joy and restoration are our hope. So flying through this with apologies that we're not giving this more time. How do we love those with trauma and depression well? We create a culture of welcome for all in our youth ministries. even the kids that are disruptive or the kids that are on their phones, it drives me crazy. Like, we ask them not to, but if they are and they're showing up, thank God they're showing up. So glad you're here, even though I'm not sure that you hear me because you're stuck in your Pokemon game. Um, we offer spaces for students to be known and loved in their struggle. So we go to their sports games. We invite them to coffee. We, we meet them where they are. Um, again, throw the football with them. How to be creative about how we meet them where they are. We create a culture of dignity. We talked about seeing one another's image-bearing. We call that out and celebrate it. Um, It can be really awkward and uncomfortable, but it's a beautiful thing. That's the awkwardness that's worth it. And teaching them to do that, like, how have you seen the character of God in in these folks? And you can kind of prime that. And creativity, kindness, his compassion, his justice. Give them words to spy one another's dignity in each other. I'm continuing to learn the long game of love. Healing is rarely quick. God seems to love to use process more than I would prefer him to. Um, but he's in it for the long haul. Continue to become trauma-informed. Don't let this be, this probably is not the first time you've heard about trauma. Don't let it be the last. Continue to grow in your understanding and knowledge of trauma. And normalize I'm not okay and getting counseling. We've all had times in our lives we're not okay. You can normalize that. While keeping in mind that the trend right now is for students to be not okay to, to connect with each other, it's okay to be okay. We need to teach our kids it's okay to be okay as well. <laughs> Truly. They, they need to hear that right now. 
we need those pictures of healthy family and like those are good things to bless so those kids don't feel isolated from the rest. And then we want to honor the complexity of humans, God, and the workings of God instead of reducing healing to Romans 12 to uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind type thing. Healing is very complex and God can heal in an instant. So we pray for that. Um, and I really would invite you to think about and be creative with how you can incorporate grief and lament into your youth ministries or your parenting. How do you create space for it? Or just talk about it, normalize it. Do you read Psalms together? Do you listen to How Long, O Lord, with your students and ask them what comes up for them? How do we make the actual Psalms and the Book of Lamentations a part of, a part of what's available to us as a, a very strange grace God has given us for the now but not yet that we won't need one day? So I'm going to pray this over us and then give you all some resources. Maybe have time for a question. Um, God of resurrection, you who let your body be broken before being raised, grant us imagination to bless even the breaking, groaning, and battling within our bodies as the brave beginning of resurrection, that in the beating of our own hearts and the breath within our chests, we would sense the pace of practicing the exhale of self-contempt and defeat and the inhale of Christ's love instead. K.J. Ramsey has written a book um, called This Too Shall Last on chronic pain and suffering that she experiences herself, and it is fantastic. So I wanted to give you my resources that I'd recommend. Um, that's the one I was mentioning. And if you have any questions, again, email me. Anyone have a question before we head out? Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking about like what it's like to experience trauma within the context of ministry. So, I mean, like big things like, you know, Mars Hill yes. has been talked about and stuff like that. Yes. And just like that experiencing the way that we then respond to trauma and like how to heal so that we can help others heal through that. That's a really big question. How do we do it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, context. There's so, so many contextual questions. Um, in community, with prayer, um, maybe with professional guidance or support. Yeah. And, um, with the long view of healing, is those are the basics, I'd say. Yeah. That'll need to be processed the rest of some people's lives. Let me pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for the body of Christ, your body broken on our behalf, um, and the body given for us to mourn with those who mourn, to celebrate with those who celebrate. Um, Lord, would you help us to know we are never alone in our own depression or trauma? Would you give us your hope, Jesus, in each of the dark places in our own lives that you see and know? Would we know your grace there, your gentleness? And would you help us to then extend that to our students and our our teenagers, Lord? Help us to rely more on you. And give us us a hope of the resurrection, Lord, of what is to come that is so deeply good. Fix us on it more and more. We pray for healing um, for all the kids that are on our minds and for ourselves. To your glory, um, we pray in Jesus' name. If you love the conversations we're having here on this podcast, we hope you'll join us in person this November at the Rooted 2023 conference in Nashville, Tennessee. It's a full three days of a family-like setting where you'll worship, fellowship, and be equipped and encouraged for another year of ministry. We'll have main session speakers, including Daniel Yang, Trillian Newbell, and Kelly Capick. 20 fantastic workshops from pastors, theologians, counselors like Mike McGarry and Sissy Goff, and music led by Sandra McCracken, the Lipscomb University Gospel Choir, and more. 
Join us today at rootedministry.com slash conference or click the link in the show notes. Don't forget to sign up before September 15th before prices increase. Again, that's rootedministry.com slash conference.